welcome to Tipping the Balance. I'm Katie Hickey, your host, and today we hear from Bryony Benjamin. Bryony is the co-founder of the company Social Parade. She is a video mischief maker, a producer, and a director. She creates video content to bring across powerful messages on subjects such as climate change, domestic violence, and tampon tax. At the age of 30, Bryony was diagnosed with stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma, and in this episode, Bryony shares her journey through treatment and thankfully into remission. She's been in remission for three years now, and Bryony talks about the lessons she's learned and the way she's implemented changes in her life since going through cancer. Welcome, Bryony, to Tipping the Balance, and uh, welcome all the way from Australia. You're my first international interview so thank you oh for... I feel I feel very excited <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not as excited as me I got to well see you on Instagram and social media and stuff because you know my husband a million years ago as you say you guys went to a RADA summer school together um I don't, I don't know what year that was but a year back then we were probably having loads of fun <laughs> Yes, it would have been about 15 years ago, I think. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, or yeah, 13, 15 years ago. And we, I don't know if Fred told you, Emma Watson was in our in our year group going through, which was very exciting. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, we turned, turned up the first day and I'm like, she looks really familiar. So I did like this double take and I'm like, where do I know her from? And then you have that moment where you're like, oh, it's Emma Watson. Uh, so she was between filming, I think, Harry Potter 4 and 5 and had come to the summer school in the holidays. So it was pretty cool. Like come to the summer school to learn or to be like a case yeah. study? Like this is what you no, can to be. Do it. Yeah, yeah, no, to learn and to, uh, you know, yeah, learn, learn all the Shakespeare. It was a Shakespearean intensive. So it was a month of living in London and learning about Shakespeare. It was amazing. You actually felt a bit like you were at Hogwarts because you'd go off to, um, you know, it was like, oh, we're going off to stage combat now and and now we're off to um, fencing classes and, you know, so it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Wow, that's amazing. I know that you, you're not an actor now, but you kind of carried on in that field, but you're a producer and a director now. Do you want to tell us a bit yes. about your work? Yeah. Well, I think too, I, I did that acting intensive and thought, oh, this is really hard. And these people are really passionate about it. And I, I don't want to be a hungry actress for 20 years trying to get a role. So I thought, why don't I go to film school? And um, I'm going, because I was studying finance at that time. So I finished that. And then I went to film school and learned how to produce and write and direct. And my thing has always been, I just think that video and content and documentaries are such a powerful medium to you know, make a positive influence and get interesting ideas out there. And I wanted to get really proficient, I suppose, at how do you do that? How do you use creativity and humor and emotion and, and heartfelt concepts to really connect with people? Um, so that sort of led me into a, a job when I got to Sydney um, of working in a production company, working with all these amazing impact and, and change making organisations, working mm. in climate change and marriage equality and uh, refugee issues um, and making really sort of quite edgy out there online digital content mm. uh, to, you know, and sort of a number of learn how to make viral videos you know mm -hmm. the the coveted term of a viral video um but yeah so it was just a bit of a training lab in how to reach as many people as you can with an important message if you do it with entertainment and humor at its core rather than just ramming a message at people yeah amazing last night I watched um the video uh the one that Doritos don't want you to see um about palm oh yeah oil. easy love story yeah, yeah. That was, you know, because you go and like watching it and you're like, oh, you know, yeah, this is funny. And then at the end, it's the message of, you know, about Doritos destroying the rainforest. That is really powerful. Do all your videos use humor to bring across messages? I mean, they don't all use humor, but it's always for me about finding what is that thing that's going to connect with people? You know, what's going to engage them, whether it be entertaining them or really pulling on the heartstrings or, you know, I mean, I love wherever possible to use humor. And I think you can, you know, some people sometimes think, oh, that's a bit taboo or that's too touchy a topic. You can't use humor there. But I actually made a documentary a few years ago for our national broadcaster 
on domestic violence and abuse in young women's relationships. And I got a comedian to host it because my whole thing was, I mean, I don't even want to sit down and watch a documentary on domestic violence and I care about this issue. So how can we bring people into this and how can we actually bring a bit of lightness and a bit of levity, not, not you know, obviously using humour regarding the topic, but around the topic and to bring people along on a journey where they can then connect with it in, in a way that they wouldn't if they thought, oh, this is going to be hard work to sit through. Then I, I went on to be an executive producer at a, at a publisher in Australia that's a very feminist. Um, it's, it's called mamamia.com.au. It's the largest female publisher in Australia. And once again, the challenge there was how do we um, talk about issues that are really important to women and really, you know, uh, I don't know about you in the UK, but in Australia up until very recently, we had a tax on all tampons mm-hmm. and, and sanitary products in Australia. And so we came up with this idea. We were like, oh, well, rather than banging on about it, going, that's not fair, that's not fair. Um, we thought it was quite funny that they, they got a 10% tax on them because they were deemed not essential or a luxury item. So we made this joke about, you know, this luxury, luxurious products that you buy, including tampons, like what? Um, so it's always just trying to find what is that hook or that humor or something that's absurd in a, in a serious topic like that. Like that was absurd that they're either not essential or, you know, um, a luxury good. When you consider also really frustratingly in Australia, um, lubricant, and condoms and Viagra did not incur the tax because they're, they're seen as essential. So it was like, oh, wow, the double standard. <laughs> Who's writing the laws? Not women having periods, clearly. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe that. Lube, I guess maybe lube might be used for medical, some medical purpose, but yeah, Viagra. Yeah, but Viagra, come on, come on. Like who wrote the law? <laughs> guys, Viagra, clearly. So, um yeah so that's always for me is yeah like if you can be cheeky I think too people really get on board with that you know they people want to it's like with that Doritos video that you mentioned we um that was actually uh, Doritos were running a competition to be like create an ad for us and you know you'll get featured during the Super Bowl kind of thing so we kind of hijacked their um their competition and um like I think that they had 10 finalists and total, they got about 200,000 views between the 10 finalists and our video got 40 million views across all the different platforms in the space of like two weeks. So it kind of blasted the competition out of the water and they were like, you know, ah. But the point was to try and reach PepsiCo, who are the own Doritos, um, who are the biggest purchaser of palm oil in the world. And because it was so cheeky and people straight away were like, oh, they're being really naughty, kind of hijacking this competition, they got on and they just shared the the Jesus out of it for us, you know? Oh, my God, 40 million. That's insane. That is just like, yeah. wow, that is really incredible. So what was there any, like, repercussion? Did any, didn't, what happened after that? Well, yeah, it's um like basically... Uh, the organisation that we were doing it for, and they're based out of uh, London, actually, called The Sum of Us. So the idea that The Sum of Us is more powerful than, you know, the big corporates and powers that be, uh, they had been trying to speak with the PepsiCo executives for, like, years, trying to get them into negotiations to work out, a, you know, what they're going to be doing with this horrendous palm oil situation. And uh, they had them on the phone within, like, at 24 hours, basically. Mm. <laughs> so they saw the ad, they wanted it taken down, which of course we didn't do. Uh, but yes, um, sadly, that competition does not exist anymore, which I feel we probably had a small part to play in. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, and so I suppose I always think of myself, uh, am I a producer, am I a director? I like to call myself a video mischief maker. And it's like, how can we create change through, through content? Yeah, I mean, it is so powerful, especially like in this day and age, you know, when we're basically glued to our devices, like creating um, powerful content can reach millions and millions and millions of people. So that's it's a really useful tool. And so you now, though, uh, you run your own business. Is that right? It's Social Parade. Um, how, yes. how did you decide to kind of branch out and and do your own thing well I suppose I I loved my role at Mamma Mia and I got to just work with the most amazing team and beautiful people so I thought oh no I'd like to go and work much much harder (laughs) by myself in it you know um 
uh, yeah, I just, um, I've always been entrepreneurial. Um, I had my first uh, business when I was at university studying finance. I started a speech and drama teaching school for kids. I just loved it. Uh, and then I had 250 students and I was teaching them while I was at uni. And um, I just have always loved running my own show, I think, and the, the unlimited, um, you know, potential that you have when you're running your own business or company. You're not sort of capped into a certain role and set hours and a set salary. And um, I think I'm just maybe uh, just like the variety too much. Um, so I decided to, yeah, that I wanted to to do that and yeah it's been it's been great you know running a business always has its ups and downs um but i just love the flexibility that it gives me to you know work on what creative projects i want to do and say no to things that i don't want to do uh, mm. and yeah seek out the the organizations the companies the people that i really want to work with mm. amazing and how how is it going for you so far like being being your own boss yeah i mean it's going well i think for me, um, I had a big health scare a few years ago. And so I think the thing that I have to just keep at the forefront of my mind now um, that Bryony of like five years ago would have just logged herself, done whatever, stayed up um, all night, worked weekends, is that I have to have really clear boundaries around that sort of thing now, um, which because my health just is my number one priority. Um, which I think is a good thing. It's like, it's the story where, you know, I hope more and more people will start to sit because, uh, you know, without your health, what do you really have? <laughs> it's, it's pretty challenging. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's probably the hardest part of the juggle for me is balancing good health and not getting too fatigued and stressed. Mm, yeah. um, so I suppose how I'm managing that is just being really selective with who I work with and um just not taking on too much just taking at the moment i'm you know i like cruising and just taking it one project at a time working on a project i'm really passionate about like i'm working with a company today actually that are a solar energy um you know company mm -hmm. they're doing great work they help millions of australians find great solar outcomes and that's a cause i can get really excited about and, and get behind mm -hmm. if it was trying to you know come up with an ad for a chip company i think i would like I just find that stuff really takes my energy. It drains my energy yeah. and I don't have that energy to give anymore. So, yeah. which is a good thing, really. It puts a, you know, they often say with, when you're trying to come up with creative ideas or creative innovation solutions, put a constraint on it. So mm -hmm. it might be something like, you know, and you can only spend $50 or you've got to make something without sound or, you know, whatever it might be, be it a campaign or a video or, a, you know, a, a book idea. And I think in a way, putting that constraint on a business of going well you can't work outside these hours and you you know can't do this i think whilst it's frustrating for someone like me that wants to do more um the the flip side of that is that putting a constraint on it does allow for other really positive outcomes mm, yeah i i god I, I feel like i'm literally drinking up everything that you're saying then because that's something I think loads of people struggle with um, setting boundaries. And it has been a theme actually of a lot of the interviews that I've done for the podcast. People talk about, yeah, going through an event in their life or having mental health problems or physical health problems. And then probably the number one thing that's come out of that is about boundaries and priorities. It's a real, a real theme. And I think it's really per pertinent to women as well, isn't it? It's like, we, we feel, I mean, I just feel like men often are just so much better at just doing what they want to do. And we feel so much more like we've got to look after everyone and, and do the right thing by people and help them. And, you know, um, but ultimately, like, I've got to the point where I'm like, if I give up all my energy for everything else, I've got nothing and then I'm no good to anyone. And, and I, I still, I find it so hard. Like, I had to say no to someone the other day who wanted me um, to do, to speak at an event. And I, I adore this person. They're a mentor. They're incredibly successful. I felt sick saying no to them. And then I got off the phone and I like stewed on it all day. And I was like, oh, maybe I could do it. Maybe, maybe I could, should call them back and I can do it this way. But I knew it would make me run down and sick to do it in the time frame that was required. Mm -hmm. And I just think as women, we've just got to listen to ourselves, trust our instincts more and just do what is good for us first. You know, mm -hmm. it's like that thing of, our oxygen mask on first before you can you know help yeah. other people 
Um, And a girlfriend of mine always says that about, you know, the idea of your cup, like you've got to fill up your cup and you can give people the overflow rather than digging into the cup and taking your reserves out. And that, Mm. when I heard that, that just resonated with me so much because I was like, I have been pouring from an empty cup for years, which Mm. I think, you know, is a big part of why I got sick. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, maybe we could talk a bit about that now, because I mean, it was, you know, a huge part of the reason that I wanted to um, talk to you today and seeing video that you put through, um, I think it's called, what would you do if you got the worst news of your life today? You can talk about the title, but yeah, yeah, that's the opening line of it. You at you know, a young age had a really serious cancer diagnosis. Um, do you want to talk a bit about that? I mean, talk, walk us through, yeah. you know, what happened? Yeah, totally. Uh, so I was 31 um, at the time. I had been feeling really icky for probably 12 to 18 months, I would say. And um, I was working as this executive producer at the time at this publisher. So I had a busy job, but it certainly wasn't the most stressful job I've ever had. Um, I was loving it, um, really enjoying the challenge of it, but I just was getting to a point where I just felt awful all the time. Um, so I was, I had a really busy social life. I, you know, busy work life, had a, had a partner at the time. Um, you know, it was go, go, go but I just never felt like I could get on top of my tiredness. Um, I just always felt, you know, when you just feel, um, when you feel a bit sick and glandy, Mm -hmm. I just felt a bit like that all the time. And then I started over a period of 12 months having these night sweats on and off at nighttime. So I'd sort of wake up a bit, you know, damp and sweaty. And and then it it got worse and worse and worse to the point where I was having these sort of every night Um, and to the point where I was having to get up, take take my pyjamas off, and put new pajamas on during the night and sometimes even like take my sheets off in the morning. Um, and, you know, so I was going to my GP, what we call them a GP in Australia, like your doctor, mm-hmm. um, you know, on, like on and off for that whole time. This is my doctor who I've been seeing for five, six years. And I just kept getting, you know, we were looking at different things for what it could be, but ultimately it sort of got put down to its stress. You're overwhelmed with your job, like, you know, you just run down, you need to just keep resting. And no matter how much I rested, I just couldn't get on top of feeling awful. So um, I know you said, Katie, you used to be a vet. My, my dad's actually a vet as well. So I grew up in a vet practice and mum and dad together, they just kept, you know, going, what is, what is wrong with, like, they could see that I wasn't myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose too, I just got to the point where I wasn't looking forward to anything. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression vet medicine, which is like when a doctor can't talk to their patient because they might be um, either mute or not, or, you know, unconscious or whatever. And it's like, you have to figure it out without the patient's help. Um, And so I feel like my dad did some vet medicine on me and um, yeah, they, they were very concerned about the night sweats and how I was feeling uh, and they ended up calling up my doctor at the time and saying, we're really worried. They didn't tell mm. me this. They said, we're really worried that Bryony might have lymphoma, mm. um, to which the doctor really, really strongly thought that that wouldn't be the case. Um, mm. And so they basically demanded that we go and, um, yeah, go and get it tested further and go and see a specialist hematologist, wow. which we did. If it wasn't for that kind of pressure that they put on your doctor um you know Mm. it doesn't bear thinking about so your doctor was just really reluctant to to kind of refer you why was that yeah well I think from my experience what I've come to uh my my sort of theory is that I think a lot of doctors are used to seeing what I call the worried well um people that are actually well but they're worried Uh that they're not you know or they're um so they're coming in with you know thinking various things um, I think the problem in my instance as well, like obviously there were things that were missed, but I looked really well. Um, I was, you know, uh, still doing a pretty full life. I was exercising. I was playing squash. I was doing touch. I mean, I was exhausted and I felt awful. But I think the other thing I always say to women as well is don't wear makeup to the doctor when you feel really sick because it just gives this illusion of health. You know, a bronzer, a fake tan makes you look great when you feel horrendous on the inside. 
And I actually had a girlfriend the other day who went to the doctor and the doctor said to her when she walked in, what's such a well-looking person doing in my office? And she just had a spray tan. And then she got her blood results back out and found out she was severely anemic. So I always say to people now as well, I'm like, don't, you know, don't wear makeup to the doctor. Don't wear, you know, let them see you in your full exhaustion and disgustingness because, um, yeah. And I think the other thing too is I was, you know, probably a bit stoic. Like I think women are quite stoic anyway, right? But I, you know, I was being told by my doctor that I was fine. So I kept thinking, oh, okay, all right, okay. Well, my, it, my, you know, it probably mustn't be that bad. I mean, if I had my time over, I would just be so much more, um, you know, always I say be polite and kind to your medical professionals, of course, but I would just have been much more insistent. I would have said, you know, and these are obviously questions that the doctor you know, may, may, may or should have asked, but I just would have been much more persistent and sort of said, this is having a massive impact on my life. Mm. I'm in huge pain. I'm waking up every night in sweats. Um, I'm exhausted from sleep. Uh, this isn't normal. And I need, like, if this was you, what would you do next? You know, I think that's a good question for people to ask their doctor. What would you do next? Um, you know, and the thing is, as I've done more research, because um, I'm writing a book about this at the moment around how do you navigate a tough time, um, women are often not believed when it comes to their pain. So women are, for example, seven times more likely to be sent home whilst having an actual heart attack. Um, their, their pain and um, they, they, they take a lot longer to get a cancer diagnosis than men do. Uh, their pain is not treated as seriously often. Um, and is far more likely to be, you know, put down to mental health issues. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and that's what was in my case. It was being put down to, you know, stress and pressure, uh, mm -hmm. which it just wasn't. So uh, I, I, I just say that to women now, and men as well, but women particularly, I say, we are the only ones who know our body. We're the only ones who know what our body should feel like. And if it's not right, you need to keep digging until you have an answer. And I think in the, in the case of something chronic or like I had or something that's getting worse and worse, everything becomes a bit of a haze and a bit of a blur and you mm. sort of forget what it feels like to feel good. And I do remember getting to the point where I thought, maybe this is just what being an adult feels like. Maybe this is what getting older feels like. Do you know what I mean? Which sounds so grim. But I thought maybe that's, that's just it, you know. It's busy life and, um, of course, that wasn't the case, but that's mm. how I felt. Mm. yeah so, so sorry I didn't actually say what, what yeah yeah no no so you or, got referred yeah. to a hematologist and then what happened next yeah so she um sort of you know was sort of alarmed that I was having night sweats each night and she sort of thought oh you know that sounds you know it could be nothing but let's do a CT scan so we did and yeah um, I came in to get the results the next week thinking oh well if they um Sorry, so I got a CT scan and she called me that day to say they were, they're seeing uh, enlarged lymph nodes all through my chest cavity. And so that was the other thing with me. With lymphoma, often it shows um, in, a, in a big lump, a visible lump somewhere in your neck um, or your you know, shoulders or something. For me, it was all hidden in my chest cavity, so I didn't have that. So she said, look, I'm going to send you off to get a biopsy. Um, there's one in your armpit that will you know, take a biopsy out of the lymph gland and that will tell us. Um, and so got that done, went back to get the results a week later thinking, oh, well, if it was bad, they would have called me by now. My mum, mother's intuition, insisted on flying down to Sydney to be with me for the consult. And I was saying, oh, mum, don't worry about it. I've got to get into work. I've got to be into work by eight. We've got a big shoot on that day, blah, 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 blah. You know, all your busy, important things. And I walked into the consult and my beautiful specialist sat me down and she just said, so the results are back. And unfortunately, it was what your parents are worried about. And it is Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's um, advanced, like it's stage four. Um, and she didn't tell me this at the time, but basically stage four is about as, as spread as it can get. So it means the cancer has left your lymph glands. It spread to your body. It was sort of in my neck, in my hip, in my shoulders, and it had gone into the bones. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, like... I, and I think it was quite good that she didn't show me the scans at that point or show me what it looked like. And I didn't really have a sense of quite how bad it was, which I think was probably done deliberately on her behalf. But yeah, it's obviously just one of those bits of information that, you know, it's news that you never expect to hear and never at 31 you expect to hear. 
So, you know, I remember just holding my mum's hand, looking at her. The tears started welling up in my eyes and I thought, mm. oh, wow. Like, yeah, it's just quite, it's quite surreal. You just don't, you just have a moment where you just think, oh, she's, oh, she's, she's mixed up my results with someone else. You know, you're just in denial. That was the first thought. It's not me. Um, she's wrong. I can't believe she got this wrong. Oh my God, what does this mean? And, and I didn't know what that meant at that time. I didn't know what Hodgkin's lymphoma, I didn't even know it was a cancer. She didn't actually say the words cancer. So I knew that the only way I could gauge it was to ask, you know, because she said, we're going to, she said, basically, we need to just clear your schedule for the next six months and we're going to start chemotherapy as soon as we can. And when I heard the chemotherapy word, that's when I suppose it sort of dawned on me a bit. And I said to her, am I going to lose my hair? And she said, yes, but it will grow back. And that was the, yeah, that was the sucker punch, I suppose. Wow. I mean, I just, I don't think anyone can really imagine really what that's like unless you're, unless you've lived that experience. Um, and what did your mum do? What was her reaction? Um, I remember her just looking at me, looking quite stunned. And she went, oh, okay. And we just held each other's hands. And my mum, she was just, she was my rock through the whole experience. She never, she held it together from day one. She just went into just dynamo super mum mode, you know. And, um, yeah. We obviously spent the whole experience together and that was one silver lining of that whole time was just to spend a beautiful big chunk of time with my mum. Obviously not the circumstances you'd ever want to do it in. But, um, yeah, and so my doctor said to me, oh, I don't want you to get too far ahead. I don't want you to Google anything. I don't want you to um, worry about anything just now. What we're going to just focus on is the next three steps. So that is getting your heart and lungs tested and we're going to run some more blood tests um, and then we're going to uh, get you, I've got you booked in for an IVF appointment first thing tomorrow morning so you can look at options to freeze your eggs and they're the only things that we're going to worry about right now and that was such helpful advice and it was some, it's something that I come back to all the time just in my everyday life now if I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed, a bit unsure I just go, all right, forget everything else. What are the next three things? And I'm just going to think about that. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. It sounds like she had a very compassionate way of communicating with you in that moment, which, you know, we don't, I, I, you can't take that for granted because, uh, I mean, my experience is not all doctors are like that, but you'd hope, I guess, somebody in her position would be very good at that. But yeah, it's amazing yeah. that. She, the way the way that she delivered that bad news you've actually kept you know that um approach to for the rest of other things in your life as well so yeah she's just a beautiful beautiful woman and a beautiful human so clever so up to date with the latest research but just had this gentle compassionate kind you know approach i mean she's a specialist hematologist she's at the top of her you know um profession and she said to me now taking care of everything like she had organized every appointment booked everything in you know normally I just feel like that would be like all right now you're going to go booking for this this and this she'd just taken care of everything she'd run the IVF clinic she'd booked me in like I just you know those those little gestures and those acts of kindness when you're going through something like that I just you never forget them no no you don't and and so what was it like having to go to the IVF clinic I mean because like the next day you what a shock um oh. what was going through your mind yeah it was a massive shock um I you know funnily enough a, a week before my girlfriends and I um had caught up we do this very like a uh, ladies finance club that we'd catch up and and do it like a chat about rather than a book club we're like let's help ourselves get sorted with you know, our pensions and, you know, all this sort of thing. Um, and we'd been all, like a few of the girls had been talking about egg freezing and um, that they wanted to do it and have been looking at the cost of it. It's quite costly in Australia. It's the equivalent of like maybe five or 6,000 pounds to, to go through the first round of it. Um, anyway, so very, it was, it was quite uh, absurd to like be texting them a week later going, 
so about that IVF thing, like I found a way to do it really quick and really cheap. <laughs> you know, there's a few, there's a flip side that you have to have cancer. But um, yeah, so I went in, you know, to the appointment with mum again and um, we sat there in, in the waiting room and, you know, you look around, there's all these expectant couples and, you know, like people planning their, their pregnancies and I'm just sitting there going, wow, like here I am with my mum, not where I did not expect to be. This is not how I thought my week would end up this week. This wasn't on the to-do list. Um, and I remember being really disappointed when I found out I was seeing a man. I was like, oh, I really wanted a female, you know, gynecologist. But I went in and this man could not have been more beautiful. He just sat me down and he said, oh, how long have you known? And I said, oh, like not quite 24 hours. And he said, oh, Bryony. And he just took my hand and he said, we are going to, you know, we're going to sort it all out today and we are going to look at options for freezing your eggs and it will be such comfort to you when you go through chemotherapy to know that you've got these eggs frozen, sitting away, waiting for you on the other side of this, um, you know, and he was just, once again, I just feel so blessed with all the medical professionals I came into contact with. So compassionate, empathetic, warm, funny. Um, and yeah, and he was right. I, it was a great comfort to be able to go through that process. And I've just felt so fortunate that I had the time to do it um, because some people don't have that time. Yeah. Do you mean okay? Because their 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 disease might be so advanced, or because they have to start chemotherapy like the next day? What? Yeah, exactly. Um, they might have to start chemotherapy just yeah the next day, or yeah, they're so unwell that it's not really an option. Uh, and I think too, because if you're normally going through IVF, you would start it at a certain time within your cycle. Yeah. When you have to just do it as quickly as you can you obviously can't wait for that so they just begin you straight away and you start injecting hormones um like that day um so i was just very lucky that my body responded really well to the hormones and you know within about a two-week period we were able to um get get it underway and you know because on the one hand i've got my specialist there going we need to start chemo asap and i'm there going well i really want to freeze my eggs and I think that was a really lovely comfort as well, knowing that my gynecologist, he said, look, at the end of the day, number one priority here is that you are alive and well on the other side of this. Yeah. So that's, that's my number one priority too. And I'm not going to risk that for the sake of freezing your eggs. So knowing that you were working with someone that really knew what they were doing, had their priorities clear and, and were communicating with my specialist. Um, yeah, so I just feel very lucky that I got the, the opportunity to do that and freeze eggs. But, you know, I was in a relationship at the time. I'm not now, but there's nothing like a pressure cooker for a relationship to like have a snap cancer diagnosis and be like, what are we doing? Like, are we like, are we going to make embryos? Are we going to freeze eggs? Are we uh, like, it was just very intense, very quickly. Mm. Um, my, my partner at the time, um, you know, we just weren't in a place where we, had really decided what we were, you know, we weren't, it, it wasn't, it was a very up and down relationship and we weren't on track to be, you know, starting a family or anything like that. So he was, he was very like generous in the sense that he just said, look, whatever you want to do, basically, like whatever gives you the best shot at being a mum. But it was, yeah, it was really hard to work out what to do there. And I did stew for a long, you know, for as long as I could. <laughs> yeah. A few days. I had the time to make the decision. How did that feel I mean it must have put a huge pressure on your relationship but you say you know it maybe wasn't the most kind of steady relationship anyway but did it help kind of sort out where you were going or <laughs> yeah I mean I think uh, it's just a tough one because um yeah like I did find it really difficult uh and I I think to when I look back on it now like I I really stewed over it and after I'd made the decision I just felt quite sick about it and I felt upset and I just wished I hadn't done what I'd done but I think you've got to also it's one of those things that when you're in a pressure cooker situation you can only make the best decision that you can make at the time and then you have to just forgive yourself for whatever decision you make and know that you did the best that you could do at that time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and and I think too for me because I had this much larger looming thing coming my way that it was much you know really it, it was like IVF was the fun lead up to chemo it was like you know um and that I just mean yeah there was something far bigger coming that mm -hmm. really had my attention I think so mm -hmm. it was all hard but yeah I think I just wanted to 
get it done. And in your in your video, um, you say, you know, like one of the first things is, you know, you you make a list of who your nearest and dearest are and then you know you reach out to them one by one and you like hold them close and stuff um so how how long did you have to kind of wait before chemo started was it two weeks did you say yeah from memory it was about two weeks so I um yeah maybe maybe nearly three we pushed it because um as anyone that's been through IVF they'll know like eggs can take a little bit longer than you're thinking they are so it's you know it's a bit of touch and go but um which was getting a bit tense because my specialist wanted me to begin and I really wanted to just, you know, give the best shot of getting as many eggs as I could. Um, But yeah, so I think I, yeah, got diagnosed on the 30th of November and I started chemo just before Christmas. Yeah. As I said, like in the, in the video, you only get one life. Um, It's just that immediate thing where you just know instantly, you know, in a heartbeat who the most important people are. Um, If you didn't already, it's a, it's a quite extreme way to, you know, find out who really matters. Um, and I just remember writing a list um, as I came out of the consult because I didn't, you know, some news travels fast as well. And I didn't want people that I loved finding out secondhand or, you know, hearing it, you know, in a distressing way. And so the key thing, I suppose, were both my sisters who are my best friends. One was in London, one was in, you know, Canberra and, I wasn't near them. So I wanted to work out how to best tell them, but make sure they had someone with them. Um, so, you know, making sure one sister, her boyfriend was there and a girlfriend was there for my other sister, just so that there was someone to be with them when they heard the news. Um, and yeah. And then I just called people one by one and, you know, I suppose you as the person giving the news as well, you have to be really careful about how you're doing that because, you know, people are going to be upset and it's going to be, be a shock, particularly, you know, I think when you're young and it's just come so out of left field. Like I think that was the, the thing people were just, they knew I'd been not feeling great, but I, you know, I it had gotten to the point because I'd been feeling so bad for so long, I'd stopped telling people that I felt bad, you know, um, because I didn't want to be, bo- it's quite boring, isn't it? To be, keep, you know, keep saying, oh yeah, I feel awful. Yeah, I feel really tired. Yeah, I'm really sick. So I just didn't tell people. Um, so yeah, you just call people one by one and just sort of say, oh look, um, I've just got my results back from some tests I've been doing. And unfortunately it's not the news we we're hoping for. Turns out I've got Hodgkin's lymphoma um, and that's going to mean chemo and the whole works. But it's, and I would say to people straight away, but you know, of all the ones to get, you know, it's a good one to get. It's going to, I know I'm going to get through this and I'm going to be fine. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, inevitably my beautiful friends and family would just break into tears and, um, you know, get really, yeah, have questions for me. And I would, and I, I think as a person in the crisis as well, uh, you sort of have to set the framework for people because mm-hmm. they don't know, they don't want to upset you. They don't know what they can or can't ask. So for me, it helped, and, and this might not be everyone's cup of tea, but for me, it just really helped me just to say, just so you know, like, I'm going to cry from time to time and that's fine. If you need to cry, you cry. Ask me anything you want to ask. But, you know, someone else might be more comfortable saying, I don't want to talk about this right now. Um, I don't want to talk about that. I think just being clear with the people around you, once again, you know, like around boundaries. Yeah, boundaries. Um, so, because, right, I think when you go into crisis mode, it's like, it's what do you need to get through this? And how do you, what do you need to feel secure and safe and happy? And you're allowed to ask for it. And actually it gives us this weird permission slip that we actually always have available to us, but we don't realize that we do, you know, to mm-hmm. ask for what we need to put the boundaries around us that we want. So, you know, um, I know when I, one of the really helpful things I did early on was I reached out to the only person I could think of my age who I'd ever known that had been touched by cancer. Um, his name was Luke. We'd worked together in a production company many years before. He'd had testicular cancer. And I remember calling him and just saying, oh, this is what's happened. Um, I don't want to talk about chemo right now. I don't want to talk. I don't really want to know too much. I just want to, I just want someone to talk to that gets it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's being really clear mm-hmm. if you're ever in a crisis or you know someone that is just like helping support them to ask for what they need. 
Yeah, because actually I thought that it was interesting hearing you say one of like one of the first things before you called your sisters was just to make sure that they were going to be okay and and yeah, making sure that all of your nearest and dearest were going to be okay hearing the news. And I thought that that was interesting, you know, that even though you're the one going through the crisis, you know, almost one of your first thoughts was, okay, but how am I going to make sure that my closest people are also going to be okay hearing it? But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that says a lot about you as a person, really, that you were worried about them as well. Yeah, um, yeah. And like how, I mean, again, unless anyone has gone through chemotherapy, and I don't think anyone could possibly have an idea of how that feels. Um, I mean, how did you kind of get through? Is it just a case of taking it day by day? I mean, how did you cope mentally with all of the challenges and difficulties that chemotherapy brings. Yeah, I mean, I think that phrase that you just used day by day is a really, really helpful, useful phrase when you're going through a challenging time. And it's something I came back to over and over again. You know, that next three things, day by day, breath by breath, step by step, we're just not going to worry about the, the, you know, all the other things. We're just going to focus on the, this immediate thing that I'm doing easier said than done but um yeah I, I've always I've tried to live by the words of a, a really beautiful family friend of ours um Gary Wield who did pass away a few years ago and he used to always say if you worry about something and it happens then you've done double the worrying and if you worry about something and it doesn't happen then you worried for no reasons so you may as well not worry until you've got a reason to worry and I did just try to follow that through um, I think in terms, so that was helpful for my mental health. The other thing I did is, you know, I mean, I documented the whole thing, which culminated in the video, you only get one life. But I, I think that process of having the phone out and just video logging and just putting it down. And it's something that didn't come naturally to me at, at first because I'd never really done that before. I'd always filmed other people doing things. I'd never just sat there and done, a, you, you know, like a video to camera. Um, but on the first night, my friend encouraged me. He was just like, I just think if you, if you could just sit down now and get some thoughts down, that would be, that could be really good. And that actually was that first opening clip that you see in the video where I say, oh, I do feel scared. And it was just that first day when the waves yeah. of like the overwhelm of it are just hitting you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so, so that was good. I mean, chemo yeah I mean it's certainly not all it's cracked up to be it's um you know it's definitely not something you would wish on your worst enemy but um I must I must you know honestly for me um once the nausea was taken care of it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be mm -hmm. um like I in terms of that I thought you know for the first few cycles I could still function relatively normally you know I could whack on a, a you know a wig and like go out and, and feel okay, um, you know, I can't imagine how challenging it's been for people during COVID that have been going through chemo, um, you know, to not have people around you, to not be able to go mm. out and, you know, distract yourself. I mean, I just think, you know, it's hard enough as is. I just think people that are doing it now, oh, my heart goes out to them. They are super human. In terms of mental toughness, it was the video logging was really helpful. And then I started journaling. So my beautiful friend, Marie Kay, she lives in Amsterdam. She's Dutch. And she sent me a book called The Artist's Way. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's, um, it's basically, it's a 12-week course in reconnecting with your creative self. And as part of it, you journal every morning. You do a thing called the morning pages. So the first thing when you wake up, you just, everything that's in your brain, you just jot it down, you write it down and you just get it out of your head and onto the page. There's no right or wrong way to do it. You just blur, blur it out. And um, it was quite interesting that she sent me that book and it was a 12 week course and I had 12 weeks of chemo. So there was this weird, like, you know, nice synergy about it. And I became quite religious about that. So I would wake up every morning and because when you're going through chemo, you're on a lot of steroids, which makes sleep really hard. So I was up at 4am most mornings anyway. I wish I could do that these days, but um, I'd be up really early. And I, that was the first thing I would do is I would just dump everything out of my mind. And I think that is so incredibly helpful when you're going through a challenging time. Um, and, and actually the research shows that 
um, it just is so good for you. Like even people that journal, apparently their wounds heal faster when they're journaling because, wow. um, you know, essentially it's this organizing process for your brain. It allows your, you know, like your central processing unit in a computer to just clear some memory, clear some space so it mm. can focus on other things at hand. So yeah, journaling was really great. And then I think just having this weirdly just having a bit of a detachment to the experience you know of course you feel deeply at times but sort of trying to balance this I'm want to survive no matter what you know I'm going to put everything I can into fighting this just to also this bit of a detachment Mm -hmm. to the overall outcome like there's stuff that's out of my control all I can do is this I'm not going to worry about the stuff that's not in my control you know but having said that I was obviously very fortunate to have amazing parents and sisters around me and a friendship crew that really made it easy for me to like they supported me so well Mm -hmm. um that that yeah I feel like that made the the whole journey so much easier and um in terms of kind of like a time frame how how long ago was your chemotherapy I'm actually three years in remission as of this week uh so yeah yay so it was about three years ago now so hence I've still got like this is three years of growing my hair back it's taken a lot longer than I would have thought um but I mean I have had lots of trims if anyone was watching this or worrying but um you know and everyone's hair grows back at a different speed so definitely you know don't be alarmed but yeah it's now down at my shoulders and I just can't wait to have long beautiful hair like yours back (laughs) oh three years I mean just I'm so happy to hear that what happened after 12 weeks of chemotherapy then what are the next steps like to get into remission what happened after that yeah so um I mean, I was very fortunate that I responded to the chemotherapy quite quickly. So after six weeks of chemo, I came in for my checkup and nearly fell off my chair when she said, oh, uh, so you're in remission. And actually, I didn't know what remission meant because <laughs> I was not very cancer literate. And I had to stop her and say, I'm so sorry, what does remission mean? And she said, oh, it means we cannot see the cancer in your body anymore in the scan. So, yeah, um, which was just amazing news to get that early on. Um, and so that obviously, yeah, made the whole rest of the journey a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but I suppose what was interesting for me is that when the chemo finished, you would think, okay, awesome recovery time. Now we're on the up and up. And that's actually when it got the hardest emotionally, which, which wasn't expected. Um, and I think from speaking to other people that have been through chemo, they, a lot of them agree, like that's actually when it gets tough because I think it's like any crisis, right? Be it, be it grief, be it heartbreak, be it whatever you're going through. There's so much admin and doing, and you've got these goalposts. And I think when you're in chemo, you know what's happening. You've got like, you know, the goal is just to get to the next thing. Then you finish. And it's like, um, a, a friend said to me the other day, who's been through chemo, she said, it's like you were on a super fast moving train that you got thrown on and then suddenly get thrown off at the station and you don't know where you are. And you're like, now where do I go? You know, Mm. you're trying to make sense of it all. You're trying to work out next steps. Then I went through a breakup, um, which just left me feeling so, you know, kind of depleted and and just, you know, because it's not like a normal breakup, right? Where you're like, oh, well, I'll get out there and start dating and maybe have a rebound. You're like, I've got no hair. I've got no eyebrows. (laughs) I've got no eyelashes. Like, I can't really go on Bumble right now, Um, you know like you're just in a bit of a pit of despair but I think the thing that really helped is when I spoke with other people that have been through it and I connected with this beautiful girl called Emily Summers who has a company called Bravery Co she makes these beautiful headscarves for women going through cancer and she just said oh oh that's so normal she said that's like 100% of people I know that have been through this feel like this at the end and as soon as I realized that that was normal to feel that then I felt okay like suddenly that lifted a weight knowing that okay this is tough and I don't feel myself but this is a valid thing to feel yeah she validated your feelings in that moment which is yeah and I think I've always been such an upbeat positive like go 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 person and and uh, you know I saw a psychologist during it like at the very beginning and she did say to me you know you actually have permission to hate every step of this if you want you don't have to find silver linings you don't have to be miss little you know positive pants and I think give it, being given that permission to go, it's okay to feel and it's actually okay to 
be sad because this is really sad. Like, this is sad. Like, I don't have the worst thing in the world that could happen to me, but yeah, this is not fun. I didn't sign up for this. Um, and yeah, because I think if you just keep suppressing, 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 you know, it just bubbles up eventually and it's going to come back to bite you big time. And then it's just finding for you, finding that balance between mm-hmm. what's going into a dangerous place of wallowing and, you know, but I, I thought it was good advice. The psychologist said, you can sit on the couch all day and cry if you like, but you got to get up the next day. And so just putting some boundaries around it for yourself mm-hmm. and then thinking, well, if I can't get off that couch, then I, you know, it's time to get some professional help. And I, I would just say that as well, get some professional help. Like everyone should just get some professional help. And, mm-hmm. and I think I'd never seen a psychologist before. I'd never been to one. So for me, it was really confronting. And I, there I am going, I'm going, I'm about to start chemo. And I still wanted to prove to everyone I was really tough and awesome and I didn't need it. And I would just say to everyone now, don't be like me. Don't do that. <laughs> like definitely go see someone who has helped hundreds, maybe even thousands of people get through what you're doing. You know, they might have a few shortcuts for you, a few, few pearls of wisdom for you. Um, and the key thing there being find someone that you really click with. That's mm-hmm. the most important thing. And I think early on I met with someone who really scared me and made me feel really sad. They were quite aggressive in their approach, mm-hmm. um, you know, which might work for some people. But for me, it was the day I was losing my hair. Um, you know, she's going, oh, why do you feel sad? Oh, I'm losing my hair. Yeah, but why does that make you feel sad? Um, because, I, you know, like it just, for me, it wasn't helpful and it scared me off. Mm-hmm. Whereas now with the benefit of hindsight, I would say, well, that just wasn't the right person for me. Go mm-hmm. find someone else, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's still, yeah, still a stigma around it, isn't there, for some people. And I just think we've got to get rid of that as quick as we can. Building mental health and mental resilience, gosh. Yeah, and I think, you know, you you touched on earlier saying about, yeah, setting boundaries and how, yeah, you might have been like go, go, go um, before, you know, the Bryony before cancer and but now actually setting boundaries around work and taking care of yourself and how your health is like the number one thing um what other kind of lessons do you think you've learned or like yeah good things that have come from it that you now apply you know in your day-to-day life yeah um well you know it's interesting I, I was saying that you know, I obviously made this video and put it together and off the back of that, it went viral and a publisher saw it and she reached out and said, I'd love you to, um, you know, create a book to like help people that are navigating tough times, like with the, some of the things that helped you. Um, so I, I spent a lot of last year doing that. And what I loved about that process was that I feel like ultimately I've actually created this book for me with all the learnings in it because you forget, you know, like it's even with my health, like, Six months later, I'd run myself into the ground again because I was back at life and starting a company and, you know, doing all these things. And I just felt exhausted, depleted. And like I now just have to accept that I have a form of fatigue, chronic fatigue of some sort. And that health and well-being is number one. Like, and I was saying, you know, when I set my goals for the year now, I health comes first. So old me would have put write a book or, you know, create a viral video or whatever it might be. Whereas now I'm like, oh, I can't do any of those things unless I'm feeling really well. I'm feeling mentally strong. I've got energy. Um, so I think, yeah, like definitely um, it was it was helpful writing all these things down because I'm like, oh, I've just got this great like little cheat sheet now for me to go back and remind myself of all the things <laughs> I learned. <laughs> but one of them being, I suppose, you know, it's just um, something that I feel like I'd already done anyway, but it really consolidated it for me. It was just like, just hang out with people that feel like sunshine, you know, <sighs> people that lift you up, that love you, that are going to be there for you when it hits the fan because like, life is just literally too short <laughs> to spend all this energy on people that are just, you know, don't really care that much for you or are not going to be there mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So, you know, I think a lot of the, the learnings in it often sound or feel quite cliche, but I think cliches exist for a reason because they're often quite true. (laughs) So, um, yeah, you know, being around people that are wonderful, um, being really clear on where you want to put your energy and it's okay to ask for what you need. You don't have to be in a crisis or have a health crisis going on. Um, You know, the other one, as I said earlier, is just knowing your body 
and listening to it, like really listen to your body. Like if I go back, if I could go back in time, my body was sending me all of the warning signs that I needed, mm. but I didn't know how to really trust that and listen to it. You know, sweats, fatigue, nausea, um, exhaustion, feeling sick all the time. Like if I really listened to it, it was saying all is not well. Um, but I was listening to someone else's advice instead of my own. Um, so that's a big one. And then I think the key thing for me is it's just crystallized that you've got to put your energy into the things that you really feel are worthwhile and that you love. You know, for me, that's making purpose-led content for brands and organizations and individuals who I really care about what they're doing, that they're doing really positive things in the world. Mm. Um, and, you know, like just getting clear rather than just meandering along down the stream of life. Like what do you really want to do with your time here? How do you want to positively impact the people around you? You know, I'm still figuring that out. Like I'm certainly not saying, oh, I've got it all worked out now and I'm the guru, but it's like <laughs> constantly questioning that, you know, yeah. and interrogating that and not just leaving it up to you know, someone else to decide. Yeah, I think that has been a real theme, a recurring theme, a lot of the interviews that I've done for the podcast, that um, that idea of, yeah, just thinking, okay, what is it that really is going to make you happy and don't feel like you have to be stuck, you know, down one path because, you know, you train to do X, Y, Z, but you quite fancy, you know, branching out and doing something else and you feel creative, but your current job is not allowing that to come out in any way. Or, you know, you, like you say, you only have one life and it's short, you know, it's okay to try things. And if it doesn't work out, that's also okay. Um, yeah. I, I'm really passionate about that as well. I think it's, um, yes, I'm really glad that you brought that up because, yeah, that's it. There's only, you only have one life and you don't want to get to the end of it and think, oh, if only I tried this or given that a shot, you know, if you don't try, totally. you never know. Totally right. And we know that like the, the biggest regrets of the dying are literally like, I wish I'd lived a life that I wanted to live, not the life other people wanted me to live, you know? And um, that, you know, that's often one of the the biggest regrets that people say. Um, and I think just the other thing to add to that is, you know, the other thing is, have fun like enjoy the ride make you know if you're not having fun in, in what you're doing in your day-to-day -day, like there's always a way to make something more fun if it's not ask how you can um and then the other thing like the one really positive thing that came out of cancer for me was it does embolden you a bit like even writing this book right like two three years like three four years ago I would have thought who am I to write a book I, I can't write a book and I'm like I'm gonna write a book who cares like I you know I've I've got you know, not just because I've been through cancer, but I'm like, yeah, I can write a book. That's great. Um, so I think just giving a bit less of a shit about what other people think, you know, <laughs> because it's like, yeah, no one actually really cares that much. And in, in, in how much energy do we waste worrying about what people are thinking and this and that, the other, you know, it should just all be more like kids and just, just go for it. Yeah. Oh my God. Absolutely. And where, um, when is your book going to be released or where might people be able to find it and stuff like that? Yeah. So it'll be out in August next year. Oh, sorry, this year, August, August, 2021. Uh, yeah. So it'll be uh, available online. So yeah, if people um, want to connect on Instagram, it's probably the best place to find me just Bryony Benjamin and um, yeah. Um, I'll be keeping everyone updated there and, and sharing a bit of like the behind the scenes so for anyone that's actually interested in like oh I'd like to write a book one day or how do you do that I'm, I'm planning a series of interviews with you know my publisher and people that have helped me make it and get it together so yeah amazing thank you Bryony you are yeah it's been so inspiring hearing you share your journey and yeah I think hopefully even if people just carry on their day not giving such a big shit what people think of them. Like, yeah, that would be really good. That's the motto to carry out of this. Give less of a shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you've been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. And yeah, I will make sure to add a link to your Instagram on the show notes so people can connect. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been so lovely to connect and yeah. have a lovely chat and see your little slice of the world in, in Devon. Yeah. And if you ever find yourself in this part of the world, you're always welcome to come here. <laughs>
Thank you. I would love to. I, I do love, love, love that part of the world. I think it's quite magical. So I'll definitely be back someday soon when, when we're allowed to travel. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Bryony. I know you're gay.